0: Traditionally, they say that it does carry the spirits of those who are named. There's a level of resemblance and there is a spirit that is carried within a name because a name is loaded. and it has a whole life behind that name. So when you're given that name, there are some characters that people do tend to take. Thank you, Matthew. It's real
1: great for us to meet in person for the first time. Yeah. And... Welcome to the show. And first of all, we have a icebreaker question we'd like to ask. So yeah. is there a
0: meaning or reason behind your name? Well, definitely there is. I think I do carry two names that I use and quite they are out there. Matthews Wahungo. Matthews is quite biblical in itself. You know, mine is just interesting that it has an S at the end. So that's one of those things. But I think one of those carries a meaning is Wahungo, which is my second name. I come from the Pagusu culture. And Wahungu uh, means it's a worm. It's an army worm, so to speak. It's an army worm that does come and destroy our crops. So, my dad probably was born during a time when there were army worms. So, that's the meaning behind that. I do have my own given them that has a significance, but I hide it because it's impactful but not in a good way, negatively. So I dropped it at some point when I was quite young because I observed how people named who carried that name while behaving It's a name that signified people with tender hands, people who will they'll be holding this glass. It just drops without knowing, you know, just slippery hands. I think culturally, as an anthropologist, I do believe names carry significance and they have an impact of those who bear them. So that's why I dropped it and I've never used it ever since. So that was replaced by Jackson, which is quite also a very Western name. doesn't have so much significance. So Mahungu is that one name that has real real traditional significance in my culture. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you never yeah. even referred to the previous name? No, I actually hide it. That's why I won't mm-hmm. tell you. And mm-hmm. that is because the next thing is you guys will be calling me that name and then I don't want to use it. So I keep it a secret. No, but probably my mom and dad only know about it. And mm-hmm. maybe my my sisters, mm-hmm. but even any person I meet, I don't, I don't share that very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Wow. And what made yeah.
1: you then take on... Another name, other names. Just because
0: I dropped my given name, I naturally took over my dad's name. Mm-hmm. So he is a Wahungu. So then I've carried on the legacy of being our mm-hmm. So my kids will be Wahungu. So that's the only traditional name I have. <laughs> so I'll hold on to that dearly. So I'll keep that. So what's the significance that
1: you see in cultural anthropology, like you said, of names?
0: Traditionally, they say that it does carry the spirits of those who are named. There's a level of resemblance, and there is a spirit that is carried within a name because a name is loaded. It has a whole life behind that name. So when you're given that name, there are some characters that people do tend to take. I may not specifically tell that. That's something I may need to go do some research about. But I know and I believe that names do have certain significance, important significance Mm. in terms of how it shapes behavior Mm. as well. You know, and sometimes is what people tell you about that person that allows you to behave a certain way. So if you're called, let's say, this glass, and they say glass used to be like this, then they normalize the behaviors of glass, Mm -hmm. right? So when you behave like glass, you will think it's normal to behave like glass. Mm -hmm. Whether it's good or bad, that's what you become. You actually embrace that behavior and that identity Mm. of being a glass, Mm. so to speak. Yeah, there are
1: some names that just don't get used because of their significance, because of their association to others. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you then get into cultural anthropology? What were your influences
0: growing up? What led you there? I first actually get a good introduction to the field of anthropology in 2016, 2017, around there. But looking back, I think there is that aspect of a social scientist that was in me that I never knew. I was quite passionate about science. I tended to really enjoy social science subjects, even in high school. That must have been history. I loved history and understanding people's way of life and other things because that's where, that's the subject that was taught and that was significant to their social aspects. And as well, the social science part didn't show up until I actually finished my master's transition into the PG. That's when the social science came and then I joined anthropology. But from a long time, even in high school, I was interested in the social science subjects, being social studies, who was being taught in Kenya, who has been taught in Kenya for a while. And then history, those were among my favorite subjects to do, apart from science. So even though I wanted to be an industrial engineer, I tended to do well in this. So two or seven, I get into environmental science and natural resources management. At that moment, then I'm doing a lot of conservation work and studying conservation and other things. I'm not quite sure about what I want to do after college. So then I took a break because in Kenya, it was hard to get a job. So I actually moved to landscaping. As I'll share, that's what part mm-hmm. of some past aspects of design that come in. Mm-hmm. So I moved into landscaping because I love gardening, so I started gardening for people and made a living out of it. And made a career and built a company, a successful company through that. But then I started doing my master's in environmental policy, carrying on what i had done at undergraduate level. I think that was when a light bulb moment that I started to connect social science to what we do every day in terms of even innovation. If you want to build successful recycling initiatives, you have to have an understanding of how people behave, what they think, what they do, is so important in the success of that technology. So then my master's was actually my first venture, even without knowing it, into the anthropology side of things, looking at how people's culture and perceptions affect how we design things. Mm. I went to the University of South Florida in Tampa to do my PhD. I then had a conversation with my advisor, who read my proposal, my initial proposal, and say, I think your proposal will be a really good fit at the Department of Anthropology. Through that introduction, Dr. Christian, who has become my mentor now, who was able now to give me a proper introduction to the field of anthropology, I'll say I found a home in anthropology because that's when I found I was able to make the connections between people's perceptions and culture and design. So that has been a long time coming. But today I do call myself a cultural and design anthropologist because I play at this intersection between research, cultural research, being able to understand people deeply and understanding of how that understanding of people translates into design. Mm -hmm. Design, whether it's for product design, user experience design, it could be designing social development projects. It could be aspects to do with environmental justice, which I still do believe I play. So I do wear several hats, but all of them have a foundation of social science and the anthropology side of thinking.
1: Mm. What's your process then, when you're working and what you do now? What's your
0: process of work? The process does tend to change with the kind of projects we're working on and the kind of different problems you want to solve. Our approach when we're involved in software design is different to an approach when we're involved in, let's say, an environmental justice project. So I would say it's been really interesting. And perhaps one of the things we could share is maybe the journey towards now becoming a design researcher, which is the space that I play in at the moment, Mm. is then I do a lot of research that goes behind the design of things, Right the design of products, services, and experiences. So in that aspect, I think because I do wear many hats, my process of doing research depends on the different problems that I'm addressing. Through Kungu Labs, which is an organization I founded in 2018 and started operations in 2020, we mostly have done a lot of work in the areas of software and product design. And in that kind of line, we are doing a lot of ethnographic research, which is basically much different than just sending someone a survey. Mm -hmm. It is being in the ground and being within the context of that person you want to understand, to understand them, and then get a bigger and broader context about their lives and how specifically that context allows you to understand that particular problem you want to understand about them. From the Kung Lab's perspective, our research tends to be a lot of to do with ethnographic research, but it's quick because in this kind of sector, especially when you're working with corporates, even though some nonprofits will be involved, most of the projects tend to be short. So then we have to really design quick, rapid ethnographic studies that will allow us to get rich qualitative data, analyze it, and then it is only through. That understanding through an ethnographic point that we're able to then inform design. And we do tend to do a lot of ideation sessions. After a whole phase of research, we then do bring together stakeholders. We go through the report with them and then have presentation. And we call that building empathy, right? They're able to understand what we have seen in the field and from the lens of the reports and a lot of, you know, rich descriptive information about certain topics we could be studying. That's when then it opens conversation for design, right? How do we solve this problem and how do we solve this problem through an ideation session? It's mostly collaborative and very participatory. Mm -hmm. So it's through that that then we're able to inform design. So I'll say from that perspective is rich, rapid ethnographic research leading into ideation sessions for design.
1: So in terms of comparing to design thinking or human centered design, would you put yourself at the front, right at the beginning of that process? How would you compare it in in terms of your work compared to what someone might
0: describe design thinking as? I think we do cut across the design thinking spectrum because we are involved at the first step of understanding the problem first because then it's only through research that you're able to understand how big the problem is and how, you know, what kind of problem you're dealing with and concretize the problem. And even as we start again, it's now we're involved in getting a bigger context about the problem and who the problem affects and being able to identify who we are designing for, the different personas and other things. So we do cut across the spectrum apart from the space where the design of the solution happens, right? We do provide recommendations, but then there's that space. Let's say, for example, recently we we worked with a non-profit funding organization called FSD Kenya. FSD Kenya were helping us design a micro-insurance product. And through that, our work involved doing a lot of qualitative research across the country, through that being able to write a report and share with the stakeholders so it's through that we are now contextualizing the problem itself and then we are involved in the design then we actually just hand over to the people who are supposed to do the design and in this case we are working with actual scientists to be able to design the product because then the Different product designers, who you work with depends on the kind of field you're working in. If you're working the software industry or a software project, then you'll be talking to a lot of software developers and engineers to implement those recommendations. And then after they have been implemented, we do come in in the usability testing side of things. When they roll out the prototype and we need to give feedback, that's an area we do provide our expertise in. And then as we roll out, we can always then be part of the people who continue to do the monitoring and the learning aspects of the project that we have participated in. Okay. Yeah. So you're at the
1: beginning and then you hand over your insights for prototyping. Then you come in again for testing and analyzing some of that,
0: testing some of those insights? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that is quite typical of software projects. But again, we have found that that has become a really interesting project roadmap. For even non-software projects, and we find that this lovely space. Because as you, when you work in a really fast-paced industry, this template now has started really working well in terms of also implementing non-software projects.
1: So, what kind of ethnographic research are you doing,
0: and what's driving a software product? I think software products, in our experience, has not been the complete product that we are designing. It has always come from a bigger problem you're trying to address, and then software becomes just a tiny portion of the solution, right? So it's, we're not going for technology first. It's almost like we are doing a lot of exploratory research, right? Being able to understand the bigger picture, everything and all the all the way, the bigger picture and the, to the tiny detail. And then stepping back mm-hmm. and then being able to review, okay, what are the main problems and how do we solve them? Mm-hmm. And then technology does come. But most of the time it could be as simple as designing a new process or changing a process as far as adding different steps right if it's for a hr issue it could be just adding someone else to change the entire user experience right i'll give an example we have just completed a countrywide study we have done with fsd kenya and a company called Myshapo, a startup in the migration sector we were studying how chama groups—you've heard of chama, mm-hmm. right? How could we be using charmers as a platform to distribute microinsurance? Thinking of charmers as a place where people come for economic empowerment, but also that's a place where people do share. It's actually become an informal insurance policy that then, if they have a problem, chama members will step in. If I'm bereaved, if I'm sick, there are always these kind of contributions that happen. So through that process, I think technology wasn't part of the conversation. It was more about how can we use it? And one of those questions was how are chamas? how do they come in, in existence for us, right? So these really broad questions that allow us to narrow. From that broad question of how do they come in existence is what are the chama dynamics? How do people behave in chamas that will make them a fit or not fit for micro-insurance distribution. So through that, we're able to identify different dynamics, the cultural and behavioral, that are able to help us understand, okay, if, if this is something we need to think, these are some of the considerations we need to continue thinking about. And then going as far as now knowing what are the main challenges in the everyday experiences if they have experienced insurance products. So through that, we will then find that there's a tiny portion that will say, okay, how do we then speed up the process of onboarding? Right, it could be okay through maybe we need to have user software that will help the insurance agents capture that information quickly instead of them feeling the mark. That's when technology comes in as an enabler to better user experiences. Mm -hmm. Yes, right.
1: You mentioned some of those kind of insights that that you get the direction that people might be going. Is there anything particular that you've uncovered in terms of? how people behave, any of the nudges that they're receiving has
0: been particularly interesting. Yes, I'll start with these. I think I'll give you two examples. One of the examples is the measure product that we are helping develop. A really cultural insight from that is how do people view charmers, right? If they think of it as an insurance product, an informal insurance, if someone dies, someone will contribute. So why should I take a funeral cover, right? That's a very big cultural insight in terms of how people perceive mm-hmm. their charmers. Mm-hmm. So, if you went there and say you want to use the mother platform to microinsurance, they'll be comparing your product with their charmer. They are not complete X matches, but it's being compared. So, in an aspect of design research, that's so significant because it helps the designers think of that product of charmers themselves as a competition for the product they are designing, right? So that makes a lot of sense. And then another aspect is because we are doing a countrywide study, we found that then the groups are quite homogeneous in that if you went to Mombasa, most of those people who coalesce together into an informal chama group are people who come from, let's say, a part in Western Kenya, Kakamega. They are together because they have similar problems, right? If they got bereaved, they are making the same type of journey to their villages. So you'll find people in Ukambani who will also have their chama in Mombasa, even though it's a metropolitan region, but also their aspects of trust because there's money involved getting to know where someone lives. So these are tiny nuances that we may have missed if we sat in an office and we were able to just start thinking of a micro-insurance product. Mm-hmm. So these kind of nuances allows us to be able to know how should this product look like. Another aspect is what is an ideal Chama group when you want to use that for a product like that. We had Chama that had five people, others had 50 people. What is the sweet spot for that? So being able to assess how does a chama with five people behave, mm-hmm. what are the pros and cons for that, and how does a charmer with 50 people, even though it gives you mass in terms of product sales, how does that look like practically when you want to implement that? So that becomes problematic. Another example that we have used ethnographic research to really uncover information that is super helpful is I was involved in a project at the University of South Florida when I just started Kungu Labs. So Kungu Labs was also involved. And in this project, we wanted to understand water sanitation and health services in the city of Tampa. What are some of the things and consideration that needs to be put in mind when we want to improve this kind of services? So that was a citywide use for the neighborhood, but that information was to go to the city. And we were studying underserved communities, communities that, Large proportion of those people who live in that community are minority communities, either blacks or Hispanics, low income, mostly renters. In that aspect, one of the things we found, for example, that the city had rolled out a water conservation program, right? It had rolled out a water conservation program that was telling people about how to save water, right? But the main problem that was affecting the water conservation was a little far more different, right? One of the issues was water leaks. But the city actually could not put those two things together.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But even though we are getting a lot of information about conservation, how should I save my water? How should I you know, use less water when I'm washing and cooking? But the main problem where we are not conserving water were water leaks. Just because this community was majority of them were renters and of low income, They were not getting repairs from the landlords, Mm. right? So then it became a problem. The city needs to refocus their thinking beyond water conservation and look at the plumbing issues that were happening there that were beyond the reach or the intervention of the tenants, Mm -hmm. right? So there are really tiny nuances that may not seem obvious, but then they do prove to be significant in how effective a solution can be Mm. from a design perspective
1: yeah that's why we call it wicked problems right because yes. it's kind of you have one problem that's tied to another one and they're all kind of forming this web of problems so even if you try to deal with one mm-hmm. even if you try to deal with picking up sanitary waste from people's houses, mm-hmm. the next problem is where does it go the next problem is what do we turn it into mm-hmm. you know and how do we get people to wash their hands and how do we give them clean water in the first place
2: mm-hmm.
1: and access to clean
0: facility? Yes. And other people have referred it to a spaghetti, a spaghetti yes. model, right? Yeah, yeah. So many things jumbled up, but you really have to pick one, right? And then figure that out first as you think of other other things that are mixing between that.
1: But as you try to un- untangle it, the other bits of spaghetti are still holding on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What other projects have uh, challenged you and inspired you in the way that you think about culture and what you do?
0: Another project, I think one of, I think the most other interesting project was a software project we did. We worked with a big multidisciplinary team drawn from civil engineering, computer science, we had environmental engineers as well. And I was the only social scientist on the team. So then our role was to really bring these social perspectives and understanding of actually what happens and people's culture to the table and be able to figure out what happens. So one of these things is we're working to help figure out in what ways could we help people who plan utilities be able to prioritize where to locate their wastewater treatment plants because it's all dependent, there's a whole science behind where our water treatment plant is located, right? So how do we figure these out? So being able to work through the different people with the different disciplines and bring together different minds and moderate these different conversations and then come up with a solution was among the most interesting and challenging experiences. Mm -hmm. because then you're working with people from low-level to high-level in terms of expertise. You're working with people with different terminologies and different jargon in their different fields. So it makes it difficult that then it's your role to bring together as a mediator of different disciplines to bring together so they can put together thoughts and then see that through. Mm -hmm. So that was among the most challenging thing and we developed an open-source software called the wastewater App. And that software helps different utilities across the United States Mm. figure out where should we locate our wastewater treatment plants, where is the most ideal, Mm. and where is it the most socially economical or economically viable place to locate, and how big should the treatment plant be how big is the population we are serving? So these kind of different calculations that are go beyond. And, and when I say we are working with multidisciplinary teams, is the model was an Excel sheet, right? Starting off from Excel sheet into now a whole application with a user interface that different people with different expertise can now use to make decisions. So that has been really cool in that, working with models that allow for decision making because sometimes design falls on implementation if we are not in a position of power to implement design decisions then they don't become useful but it has been really interesting that when you work with people who make everyday decisions that are impactful in the way we live our lives that is super super impactful but getting into those circles is quite difficult. But when you get in that circle, I think it's very, very productive. Mm -hmm. Another example was on a project we did from 2020 to 2021, we helped the city of Tampa develop a model to prioritize where the infrastructure investment should start from. It's still a design decision because let's say a city has $2 billion, right, to invest in a project to let's say rehabilitate the wastewater system or or water system or transportation infrastructure for that matter, how do they determine where they should start with? How do they determine which communities they should start? So then it's us as social scientists to start thinking about that, working collaboratively with people from other disciplines. For example, in this project, I work with civil engineers, environmental engineers to give me data on how old is the infrastructure in the communities, How many more years does it have before it's repaired? Those kind of very interesting and complicated civil engineering stuff. And then bringing in the social aspects of who lives in that community, how much do they earn? What do they do? Do they commute to work? Do they have a car? So bringing and marrying all these different things into one model for decision making was so impactful Mm -hmm. and then using this model and giving them to decision makers. Mm then they are able to use and make important decisions that will affect the most vulnerable in the community. Mm. So through that project, we used this kind of different model. So we developed different indices, a social vulnerability index. How vulnerable is that community? Infrastructure vulnerability index. How vulnerable is the infrastructure in that community? And then thinking about that, the different indices holistically, we were able to help the city of Tampa start making prioritization decision decisions and investment decisions on how much they have. The little money they have, they need to exactly where to place their money, right, mm-hmm. for the infrastructure development. And through that, I think we just won an award, the 2023 Wesley mm-hmm. Honours Award, a prestigious award that is given to one project every year. Wow. Well, yes. Wow, well, well done.
1: Yeah. yeah. Congrats. Yeah. That's deserved. How do you then go about... This idea of having a big problem to solve in many different areas, or let's say city of Tampa, but it still has many many communities, just like Nairobi or just like Kenya, many communities. How do you go about solving problems on a local level? If, for example, you have a really different
0: community in Mombasa and then in Kisumu and and Nairobi, what I've learned over time is solving that problem. I think is thinking of the scale. And I think you're spot on in terms of from a local community to a large city, how I think the scale, the scale allows you to think of different stakeholders involved at at different scales. At the community level, if you are addressing an issue of laundry facilities, the stakeholders involved there are laundromat owners who live around there, right? So a solution will have to involve those people Mm -hmm. and at that scale. So the scale does matter because it does tell you which kind of stakeholders need to be engaged, but also it allows you to figure out which kind of personas or communities or groups or the most vulnerable groups in that area, right? Mm -hmm. If you're looking at a community or your neighborhood, you'll be able to think about people who need that solution most, right, in a different way compared to a city. The city is much bigger and then there are different other timing groups that you may need to think about, mm-hmm. right? So I think the scale does matter because it guides you on how who needs to be involved, how big in terms of the solutions needs to be, right? That's where also do you design your research to understand the problem deeper. It takes more time to understand larger-scale problems than small-scale problems, right?
1: What kind, kind of problems would... You like to try and approach
0: and try to work on? I think just looking back at this project that has just won us an award, I feel quite interested in taking at this idea of underserved communities and in infrastructure, right? How can we continue the legacy or work around helping address issues of infrastructure justice? I mean infrastructure justice in the sense of communities that are most vulnerable but live in the areas with the worst infrastructure. How can we continue addressing this? Mm -hmm. How can we continue having these conversations the ears of the decision makers who do the budgeting and the key decision making? I think that's pretty interesting. So to scale, we may need to be able to figure out how do we take our model from the small scale it is to be able to design, for example, a technological tool that will be open source enough for people around the world to use, right? That I'm able to plug in information about socioeconomic status in the different infrastructure issues and I'm able to get to know how bad this place is. I think that should help communities do that, mm-hmm. right? So using this kind of research to address justice issues, mm-hmm. Right and other sub-communities, yes.
1: Really interesting. People are disproportionately affected on so many different levels. Personally, it can weigh down, right, because something happened with the bus or because there's no water, because there's no power. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for sure. We've been using human-centered design for a while. A lot of people have different names for it, but really on the fact that we need to focus on The planet, we need to focus on life-centered design because we share this planet with many other species and life forms. How do you feel about that?
0: That's pretty interesting. (laughs) At some point, I actually almost printed that T-shirt and I was thinking, because I have one T-shirt called Human Centric, good for human-centered design work and, you know, really interesting what you guys are. I think it's a really important thought for us to continue. And I think that's one of those critiques for human-centered design, that how well do we consider other things beyond us, right? Are we selfish in our thoughts? Definitely, yes, but it does. In itself, it's not a bad thing, but I think it's a challenge for us to think about the impacts of our design. I think that's the one way we can then address that critique that we are not thinking about life-centered design Mm -hmm. where we think about the impacts of our design.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: We don't have to change it, reinvent it, but we just have to be a little more thoughtful about the impacts of what we do, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The impact is social, environmental, and any other impact, may think of of the designs we produce, Mm -hmm. right? Think about that. I think that addresses that critique, right? And again, already a lot of work is happening. For example, I've just given you several examples of how, for example, research, ethnographic research and design decisions, environmental issues can be addressed by design decisions. Mm -hmm. That is in itself, right, a way to address the critique of we are human-centered only, right? Mm. When people are designing out west, designing out west of traffic, designing west out of manufacturing. Those are already decisions that are going towards the bigger life goals that we have, that mm. environmental conservation and these kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. Does that makes sense? Yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. Glad to
1: get your inputs on that. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. Where should people
0: find you? Any other closing thoughts? Part of my closing thought I say at the moment, there's very little trust in research. And I think one of the challenges, it could be the challenge is twofold, right? There is this aspect of legacy companies that have made it or entrepreneurs that have made it from a corporate standpoint. But then I know, I know how I made it. So what will research tell me, right? Secondly, there's this aspect of lack of trust in the quality of research people do. So I think as a person in design research and design researchers out there, it is important to be able for us to learn how to communicate value of research, right? How do we communicate value of research? Why do you need research? And why do you need research when you want to design products or experiences? That's one thing that we need to continue learning how to communicate. Mm -hmm. Secondly is... The aspect of quality of research, that's something we need to address and that has to be done through mentorship. I'm only as good as I was taught by my mentors. I only started growing when I saw how good other people's work were, right? And how they taught me how to do good work, right? So that's a conversation that we need to continue, especially as we mentor the next generation of design researchers. And through that, we have just started an anthropology cafe, and we are calling it Anthro Cafe, which is a meetup for anthropologists and design researchers who are interested in learning and continue to hone their skills around that aspect. And we have a lot of conversation about what is happening, new methods that have come up, different ways someone can reinvent themselves and package themselves. So these are conversations that we have meetups. And that's something we're having bi-monthly meetups to mentor a new generation of researchers, mm-hmm. right? So beyond that aspect of quality and mentorship, I think the other aspect has to be that then we do continue for young, young, upcoming design researchers. There's always that feeling of feeling like an outsider, in never feel you to go, mm-hmm. right? An imposter syndrome that never goes away. Mm-hmm. Even a seasoned design researcher will feel like an imposter because we are always working on different problems. If I'm taken to an insurance, to design an insurance product, I'm going in there with a clean slate, open mind, because I don't know anything about insurance, I'm learning. So I think that other takeaway will be we have to be open to learn, right? And we don't know anything. Nobody knows everything, especially with culture and people. We don't know. We're always learning about people. And people's behaviors change and cultures change. So we have to always be open to learn about people, right? Yeah. the design thinkers, ethnographers,
1: that's the thing. We are always the naive one learning, right? From the experts or from
0: the people who are living their lives. Yes. Yes. So I'm available on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram as well. So across the digital spectrum, you'll find me. Matthew Zuhungu and then... Kungu Labs mm-hmm. is also available, mm-hmm. available across the digital spectrum. So open for work, design research work, especially for those people who are interested in really rich, qualitative research that gives different nuances and depth of understanding of people mm. and how that translates into how we think of solutions. Oh. So that's one of those things that we are available to do. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Awesome.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, great. I'm Thank sure this great. isn't the last conversation we're gonna have. I think yes do that more often. If you have any ideas for episodes we should do, people we should host on the show, please let us know. We're really, really interested in hearing your thoughts. And if you've made it this far, a review would mean so much to us as well on whichever platform you're listening to us on. Or even a recommendation to one of your friends or through a tweet. We hope to get these stories out there to more people. I'm Adrian Kowiak. This episode was edited by David Kenori with music by N'Gala and Mercy Barno. Thank you for tuning in to Africa Design.